Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your studies. So this is going to be two weeks of walking on water because I have two main points that I want to make. And if I tried to put them into one lesson, it's too much. And then as normal, if you break something up over a period of time, you're able to digest it a little bit, maybe even experience a little bit of the phenomenon of what is going on with the symbolism in this story. Hopefully you'll see that by the time we're done. So it's part one of two for walking on water. It's actually Sea of Galilee part 18. So we've done 18 sessions on the Sea of Galilee. We interrupted that when we finally finished the book of Mark and talked about the crucifixion as the triumph of a king. And Mark sets that uh, in, a, in a way that speaks culturally to those in Rome, particularly, who were reading that. But this is part 18 of, of our look at the Sea of Galilee. This, of course, is a picture. If you travel to Israel, you can go on one of these tour boats to ride on the Sea of Galilee. This was right at dusk, so the folks were out getting a ride. It's really, uh, it's just an, it's a novelty to go do. You can basically see everything, but now you see it from the middle of the lake instead of from the shore. So, And since the disciples are cruising in a boat on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walks out to them, uh, this will be our representative background to try to encapsulate that. So walking on water, part one of two. And one of the things that we need to tackle, and we've done this before, so this is not anything new, is we have a real problem when we read the story as modern Westerners. It has to do with the context of what's going on, the symbols being used to communicate something. And the problem is, the context is ancient Near East. And we, of course, are modern Westerners. And it's a world of difference, the way that Easterners communicate to Westerners. And particularly when you get to the ancient side of that, the ancient side communicates completely different. And we live, and all of us have grown up, in some kind of scientific materialism, or in a scientific materialist world. Meaning, this is kind of how we want to solve every biblical problem with an equation. So, when you read a story like Walking on Water, what's the first thing that, we, that someone will argue? How did that happen? Right? I mean, I even think of it myself. 
what laws of physics were being violated? You know, what was going on that Jesus didn't fall through? We want to solve it. And if I can't put it into an equation, if I can't replicate it in a lab, well, then it must not be true. And when we get into those arguments, because we're Westerners, we're missing the symbolism and we're missing the, the bigger picture of what's being said. So if this represents our Western way of thinking about things, scientific materialism, this might represent the Eastern way of, re of telling a story. It's all symbolic. And every one of those little symbols means something to the audience who understands the symbols. And by the way, the female figure there is the goddess uh, Ishtar. And then you have this animal with the head of a human being and the wings of an eagle, um, the sure-footedness of, say, a horse. And it's, it represents, you know, the, the combined strength of all the forces. You read something like that in the book of Daniel, you know. It was a head of an ox and a lion and, a, and an eagle and whatever else. So this is the way the ancient Near East, when they tell a story, they tell it in symbols. We want definitions, and we want definitions that can be tested. And they don't do that at all. So they're, they're, they use the symbols, tell you the story of what's being communicated. And this, of course, gets to be a real problem because we as Westerners, if we think of the Bible as like a, uh, an iceberg, you know, God is infinitely deep, and so Scripture is infinitely deep. And if you read it, as we often do, only at the surface level, Jesus walked on water. Okay, well, how did that happen? I don't know how it happened. Uh, you know, we, if, we, if we only look at that at, at the surface level, then we miss the symbolic nature of the event that is much deeper. It's, it, it's beneath the surface. I mean, well to use the same metaphor of the, of the iceberg, it's somewhere deep. And those symbols, if we can capture those symbols, they speak to a human being in a way that a definition doesn't. It's a picture. It gives you something solid. The symbol stays with you. That's the power of using symbols. In our modern way of communicating, we communicate low context. When we speak to each other, everything's right at the surface level. All you need to do is hear my word. You don't have to know my body language. You don't have to know the imagery I'm trying to paint. You just listen to the words. That's all low context, right on the surface. Easterners, particularly ancient Eries, high context. Everything is layered. The meaning is layered into the story or into whatever they're, the way they're telling you something. So, what do you think happens when low-context people read a high-context document like the, uh, the Bible? Well, confusion reigns. You know, read the book of Job, and you're like, what is he talking about? Well, because it's all high-context, symbolic. And if you don't know those symbols, we miss them. So what I want to ask you to do today is we're going to set aside all of our Western ideas about Jesus walking on water, and we just want to look at the symbols, and then what do they mean, and then what does that story tell us based on those symbols? So rather than, you know, my brain trying to figure out how physics was, was being broken or the laws of nature were being broken, and one of the main points
points in this whole thing is Jesus is walking on not just water, he's walking on the sea. Yeah, he's walking on the sea. And the sea is huge symbolism in the ancient Near East. Throughout the ancient Near East, from Babylon to the Hittites and the Canaanites, where the Israelites are, and down to Egypt, the sea. This is a picture of the sea. It's the force of chaos that continually slams against the order that God created on land. And every once in a while, the sea hurls a storm, and the storm disrupts this order that we've created, and you can't stop it. And if you want an example of that, go to Florida today, or Haiti, or wherever the, her- the next storm's coming. This is what Jesus is walking on. And that represents much more than just where there's a storm, like the, some phenomenon of nature. That represents the ultimate chaotic forces in the world. So where's Jesus relative to the storm? Ah, he's above it. So if you're ancient Near East, you take this picture of waves and a, and a lighthouse, and you imagine it to look something like this, maybe. It's a monster. This, the great sea monster that is below the water, and it's like a serpent, and that serpent begins to move and is angry, and you get waves. It's full of an imagery. And, of course, sea monster imagery is all over the world. The sea is the abyss. It's the place. It's the underworld. So this might be how the ancient world imagines. It's the monster of chaos that lives below the sea. And the symbolism is what we want to pay attention to. Okay, we'll come back to this in a minute. But So if we just think about the sea, Jesus is walking on the sea. In the ancient world, the sea is the abyss. It's the enemy of God. It's the force of chaos that disrupts God's order. It's um, God creates perfect order, and the next thing you know, the waters are disrupting that. So this is what the sea represents. The moment you see Jesus walking on the sea, now the the picture uh, of this, the ancient picture of this comes in that we often don't think about in our own Western mind, the the way we think about the, the Bible through our Western eyes. Okay, so the sea is the abyss. It's the enemy of God. It's the forces of chaos that disrupt order. And I'm going to show you today, there's a Canaanite god. So the Canaanites were the people that lived there in the promised land. The Israelites drove out the Canaanites. And there's a Canaanite god called Yom. The reason that's important uh, is it's going to connect, of course, to the Old Testament, but you have to know that this was very real to them. And Yom, of course, looks something like this. That's Yom. You know, go down to the seashore. Do the waves ever stop their battle against the land? Nope. They're continually, even, you know, Job talks about God putting a boundary to the water. Well, why is that important in the ancient world? Because that waters all the chaotic forces. God will put a boundary to the chaotic forces. A picture like this is doing double duty. It's the phenomenological chaos that we all experience in life, whether it's a storm 
whether it's the chaos of um, being told by the doctor that you have a sickness or a disease, it's the chaos of losing a loved one, it's the chaos of the loss of a job, it's all the forces of chaos that exist that destabilize us as if we're in a flood. And this is all throughout the Bible. So when we go back to this, walking on water, you say, well, where is Jesus standing relative to the storm? And that's now you start to get a picture that, oh, there's more going on. This is, it's telling us something about Jesus, but not just that he has control over the laws of nature and can walk on water. He he's resides above the chaos in some way, shape, or form, and there's more to it than that, but that's just one way to think about it. Okay, uh, so he's going to go out and walk on the sea, and of course, when we read the story next week, we'll read through, you'll, you'll notice that the disciples are rowing, and there's, the wind is against them, there's a storm, so it's all the forces are coming out. Now, if you look at, let's see, where am I? Uh, number two. I haven't even gotten to number two yet. Okay, number two, main points. So the main points, and this is for not only for today, but for next week as we review this. I'll show you the Bible from uh, Genesis, to, Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. There's a common theme that there's a cosmic battle of order versus chaos going on. Of course, the monster of chaos is represented when you look at the biblical like poetry as the sea or a sea monster. But there's a cosmic battle. It's order versus chaos. And you want to know, what are my actions contributing to? When I walk as Jesus walked, do I create chaos or do I bring order to the chaos? And that's part of our job is to go out and restore the order that our ancestors have created here, mankind has created. So it's a cosmic battle. God wants us to join in that fight. God has authority over the chaos. So when you bump up against chaos in your life that seems overwhelming, the place that you appeal to, the authority that you appeal to is God. He's the one who has authority over the chaos. So God has authority over the chaos. Now, there's an ancient Near East idea, and it's going to show up, of course, in our New Testament, that the authority of the Father is going to get passed down to the Son. So how do we know Jesus is the Son of God? Look at his actions. And if the, if the authority of what he's doing resides with the Father, but it's being passed down to him, he's the Son of God. That's how we know he's taking on God incarnate. He's taken on those the authority that only God has. So this is what we'll do today. Um, the cosmic battle, God has the authority. We don't. And we often have to know our limitations to say, okay, God, it's up to you now. This is too much for me to handle. And that the authority of the Father is going to be passed down to the Son. It's one of the main ideas that really helps us connect, especially a story like walking on water. And then next week, what we'll do is we're going to say, okay, well, you're a child of God. How does this fit with you? Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on the water. It worked. Until something happens, and then he sinks. So that story with Peter is so important for us, because it tells us that God's power can flow through us. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be able to walk outside and stop the rain or anything, but 
When there's chaos in our life, we can, through appealing to God, rise above that chaos through the power of God. So that'll be mostly for next week. Okay, so those are kind of the main points. That's number uh, two on your handout. What I have to do is I have to talk today like three separate points, and then God willing, I'll pull them all together at the end. But we have a God that's a God of order, and it's not tyrannical order, as many people say the Bible is, right? People talk about, if non-religious people talk about the Bible as if it's tyrannical order, it's not tyrannical order. It's the natural order where human beings blossom. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. These are things that bring order to the chaos around us. Okay, so we have a God of order. Of course, our ancestors messed it up. God says, okay, your ancestors messed it up. Now I want to partner with you to bring order out of this chaotic situation. So you're going to have to act. I'm not going to stand, I'm not going to let you lay on the couch and have me do it all. We're going to have to act. So God is a God of order. And when you look at the ancient Near Eastern myths, which we won't really go into detail about them, I'll show you just one. They also have this idea of order and chaos. And chaos, of course, is represented by the sea, but they want more than anything, some level of predictability in their world. They live in a chaotic world and they're just trying to figure it out. So they have the same gods, the same ideas that we have. But God is a God of order. And all throughout the Bible, you get something that is like this. It's like a, the, it's the battle between God on one hand and the forces of chaos uh, represented in biblical poetry as the Leviathan or as the Rahab or the sea monster. It's the force of chaos. And one of the great things about our Bible is that there's only one God, and that God has authority over all. It's not one God of chaos versus one God of order, and one day maybe that God of chaos will win. No, no, no. Our Bible says no, no, no. We know who wins this game. It's God. There's one God. And that's really important, because you don't have to worry about him getting knocked off the throne. So this is what we see from uh, literally first sentence of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And let me give you one example. I didn't put it on your sheet, and I apologize for that. I'm just going to read it here, because, but it's, it represents prophetic biblical poetry. Now, I realized here, I put on this slide, it's chapter 27, but I didn't tell you what book it was, so I apologize for that. Here, I'll just read it. You figure out which book, which chapter 27 of which book. Um, Okay, this is from Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 27, and you, you can go back and read it uh, when you get a chance. But Isaiah 27, in that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword. Now you get to the, to the monster side of it. This is the, these are the mythical sea monsters. Who's he going to put the sword to? Leviathan, that gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. And then, finally, which really Isaiah is explaining it, he will slay the monster of the sea. Now, so is that literal monster of the sea? No, it's the metaphorical monster of the sea. It's the monster of chaos. There will be a day where God's going to redeem the world, and the chaos that we see outside is going to be judged, and everything's going to be put to right. 
and it's going to be like God going up against the forces of chaos or that monster of the sea. So it's this is basically the story of the Bible. And of course, he redeems, he wants to redeem the creation through his sons and daughters, and that's, and that's all of us, and of course, through Jesus. Okay, so if we, if we look at just a, um, a brief overview, very brief overview of the Bible, and the idea that God is going to redeem the chaos, he's going to restore what was broken. There's a, uh, a great phrase, tikkun alam, means to fix everything, to restore order. Bring tikkun alam. That means you go out every day, of the, every day you're alive and bring some order wherever there's chaos. You're never going to be able to solve the problems of, of the world today. Those are cosmic problems. God will handle those. But he might call you to do one or two things that's going to bring some order to somebody's life or something around you. So we're part of this uh, redeeming process. So God redeems. Okay, Genesis 1, even I'm just going to go through some of the books of the Bible and to give you an idea. And, and again, once you have the concept or of the chaos versus order, the chaos monster, go back and read these because they'll start to jump out at you. Genesis 1, the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heaven, heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Tohu vavohu, it means chaos. And then it says, and the spirit hovered over the deep to home. It's like the deep waters. And then God speaks, boom. And when words of truth hit chaos, chaos divides and order breaks out. That is uh, Genesis 1. We see order coming out of chaos. The waters divide. That's the first thing that happens. You get land and plants and animals and trees. And next thing you know, it's human beings. And it's perfect harmony. It's the Garden of Eden. God brought order out of that chaos. And then, of course, he says, okay, now you human beings take over. And what did we do? Well, you know the story. And it all goes back into chaos. So Genesis 1 is this idea of this, these forces of order versus chaos. If you look at Genesis 6, uh, which is the flood narrative, that flood is representative of the forces of chaos. So, for instance, Genesis 6 isn't just a flood. It's a, it's a decreation event. In the beginning, God separated water went up and water went down. Then, uh, when you start reading the flood narrative, it says the rain came down and the springs from underneath burst forth, meaning the water's coming in both directions. It's a decreation event. It's really important. And then, of course, God divides the waters again and you get a whole new, we're starting over again. But that's another great story where God's going to um, redeem out of the chaos. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 89. We'll look at that briefly. God rules over the sea in Psalm 89. These are just a few examples. Another one to read, because we're not going to have time today, Habakkuk 3 is a great imagery of God and the sea. And I, I put Habakkuk 3, 10 to 13, but read the whole chapter. I think I, I, think I shortchanged you there. It's not a long chapter, but okay. The point is, this is a theme that flows throughout the Bible. And then it ends, of course, our Bible ends, Revelation, right? 
And Revelation 21, almost the very it's Revelation 22 is ends the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 starts out with this very strange statement about the sea. So the first sentence here in Revelation 21:1 says, "Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The earth is being redeemed. It's there's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away." And then you get this statement, and there was no longer any sea. Now why does John write that? Well, because that's the representation. Is, is there going to be chaos in heaven? No. All of the order that God originally created is going to be redeemed. And when we get to heaven, the sea will be gone. But it doesn't just mean, I know some of you like going to the beach and you want to walk along and watch the sunset and all of that. That's not the point. The point is, it's the forces of chaos that disrupt everything are not going to be there any longer. That's the metaphor that John is working with, and his audience knows it. That's why he beat the beast out of the sea in Revelation, or the... Anyways, it runs throughout the entire Bible. So, God is a God of order. He wants to work with us to bring order out of the chaos. Some problems are so uh, on God's level, you have to let them go and say, okay, God, I'm going to release this to you. And then the obvious metaphor, the sea goes away when everything is redeemed. Okay, that's point one. We have a God of order. Let me give you, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put in, especially just for the video, two references. Um, because if you're trying to build a library where you want to learn a little bit more about this, these are two great books to go to. I've mentioned this one, and I didn't put it on your handout, but I've mentioned it so many times in this class that I just left it off. It's called The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. and it's just like a dictionary, so if you go to the entry for water, or you go to the entry for sea, or go to the entry for chaos, they're going to talk about all the same things. It's all what we're talking about now, and how the sea is, the imagery of the sea is used to communicate, not only in our Bible, but throughout all the cultures around where the Bible is, is being written. So that's one, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, great one for a, a resource. The second one, and this one really, for me, the, the, the walking on water is where it finally made sense when I read this book. Foster McCurley was an Old Testament professor at Lutheran University, I believe in, Pen in uh, Philadelphia. Um, and it's called Ancient Myths and Biblical Faith. Now, he's, uh, he's trained in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, Babylon the Canaanites, and Egypt. So he, he explores all of that, then the biblical language, and how he can tie together New Testament and Old in ways that uh, I think we miss. And that's really what we're talking about today. So this is another great book if you're interested in that. Let's go to the next point, the Canaanite sea god. So I'm just, I'm jumping to another point, but we'll bring it all together in the end here. There's a Canaanite sea god. Now, the Canaanites, remember, God says, I'm going to give you the promised land, but the Canaanites are there, so you're going to have to kick them out. And of course, throughout the history with the Israelites, they were always intermixing the Canaanite gods with their own worship. So you have a, a sea god called Yom. That'll be important in a minute. And there's a cool story behind this. 
how do we know about this sea god Yam? Here's a map. This is, this is the eastern side of the Mediterranean. So Jerusalem sits right where that red star is. The Dead Sea is right next to it in that rift valley. Just up the rift valley is the Sea of Galilee. I just underlined it in red. So that's where Israel is. And then just up the coast from Israel is a, an ancient city called Ugarit. And this is pretty cool. In, in 1928, well, it was either 27 or 28, a farmer was farming, farming his, or he was plowing his field, getting ready to plant it. He hit a giant stone and he wanted to dig up the stone. Well, when he dug up the stone, he discovered an entire city that had been lost. And the city that is called Ugarit, he discovered this and there was tons of writings, not only contracts, bills of sale, um, there were religious writings, there were temples. It's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing find and it, it was, made some big shifts in our uh, scholarship, biblical scholarship, because there were some Hebrew words that they had, uh, scholars were having trouble translating, understanding what it, what it really meant. And when they discovered the text at Ugarit, they finally figured out some of these Hebrew words. It's pretty remarkable. Okay, so Ugarit, this has a whole story of these gods that are doing battle, okay? And I'll, it'll connect in a minute, but hang with me. So there's a whole story, a cycle throughout the year, the gods cycle as the season cycle. And in the fall, this god Yom comes up. Yom is the Canaanite god Yom. Yom represents the sea. He's the forces of chaos. And he's going to go up against this god that you all know, Baal, or the Baal gods. Baal is a god of order because when he, when he brings rain, it's rain like the dew from Mount Hermon that helps your plants grow. It's not the crazy storm that floods you. And there's a, big, there's a difference, right? So in the fall, Yom would start to, you know, the serpent would start riling up. The sailors didn't want to go out to sea any longer. And the storms would come in off the Mediterranean, and they viewed that as this god attempting to disrupt the order. He's not only the god of the sea because of the storms that come in, but he's also the god that of, is called the judge of the river. Because what happens when the rain comes in and, and falls? What happens to the rivers? Well, the water rises, and they create chaos, right? For all of you who live in San Diego, what's going to happen in sometime in December or January in Mission Valley? There's going to be a flood. You know why? Because there's a flood every year in Mission Valley when it rains, and everybody freaks out because there's a storm coming off the sea, the drainage isn't good enough, and it floods somewhere in Southern California because that's what it does, and it's the same climate over there. So anyways, this is what happens every single year. So this is their image of Yom. The Mediterranean Sea starts to get riled up. The sailors don't want to go out, and the storms come in and disrupt the order of Baal. This is what we're dealing with, at least with something that's very close to the biblical writers. And of course, we know this. This is the Mediterranean Sea, and we would say, well, that's just the weather patterns, right? Now, the word sea, right here on your screen, S-E-A, sea. In Hebrew, the Hebrew word for sea is yam. Same word. So when your Bible, Old Testament, talks about God rebuking yam, the sea, 
there's also, you just have to realize there's also a god right down the road called Yum. See. So it's doing, do, it's doing uh, double duty. That god rebukes the god Yum, but he's also rebuking that sea monster. In Hebrew, oh, hey, everybody, look who it is. Come here. Can you say hi? Hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know I've said this before, but curriculum is what the teacher plans. Interruption is God's curriculum. That's how he gets your attention. Okay, so this is so cool. The reason this is cool is when you see in your Bible how in the Old, in the Old Testament that God is going up against the sea, yum, there's also a God, yum, right up the road. And so we'll see this in a minute. It's all going to come together. And what's Jesus walking upon? The sea, yum. So he's walking upon that sea monster, that, or the, the thing that represents the chaos. Now, real quick. It's uh, August 17th right now, and what time of year is it in the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico? It's the time of year that everyone's going to start talking about storms. The sea is going to start throwing things against our created order, right? And it's going to disrupt our created order. And this is how, one, one thing that's really important is, we don't have formalized religions, although there are formalized religions that do worship nature, but we don't really think about it that way. Watch how people act, not what they say. Watch how they act, right? And when the hurricanes come, watch the way people act, because they act just like the ancient people did when the storms were coming off of the sea. And in California, it'll happen this winter when it comes off the sea. The news will rile everybody up, right? And even this, look at what we do with our hurricanes. So this was just today. This is, uh, I don't know what they're calling it, Tropical Depression or Tropical Storm. Grace. Oh, we even name the storms like it's a human being, right? Like the storm has forces that are, that are just like a human being would. So we anthropomorphize storms. And all for the next three months, every storm is going to create chaos. You think the world's going to end, even though Miami names their football team the Hurricanes, because the Hurricanes have been coming there every summer for, you know, as long as people have lived there. So when you see something like this, Grace, Hurricane Grace, it's because we're anthropomorphizing the storm. It's the same thing that ancient people did. Uh, here's one from a couple days ago, because the storm was going over Haiti. So you have Tropical Depression Grace, so there's the name. And then on this headline, it says, Takes Aim. Now, is the storm really taking aim at Haiti? Now, when you say take aim, there's an insinuation that it has a mind of its own, that it can think about, oh, I just saw Haiti. Haiti's in bad shape. Let me go take aim at Haiti. Watch the news over the next few weeks. Hurricane so-and-so is targeting Miami. No. The hurricane doesn't even know what Miami is. It's just a storm. But this is what human beings do. We take any force of chaos and we will start putting our own anthropomorphizing it with our own human tendencies. So we'll even do things like sacrifice to it. We sacrifice. Some people sacrifice to Mother Earth. 
Because if you don't do act right, Mother Earth is going to get you. Sometimes we scapegoat people. If the weather doesn't do what we think it should, we'll blame it on somebody over there. So the, human beings have this real tendency. And I just wanted to point out, when you get this idea of chaos and storms, we're still stuck in that problem. It's not going to go away. But it's a great time of year to do this because we have to be reminded that we haven't changed much as far as our human nature. It's just we have more advanced language and we have more advanced tools, but uh, we still act the same way when the storms come. Okay, now point number, uh, this is point number six on your sheet. I think it's on the back. Did I get those numbers right? Yeah. So on the back of your sheet, there's a concept, comes out of the ancient Near East. How do we know that somebody is the son of God? Well, the way we would do it, we would look at it as the authority of the father is being passed down to the son. So we have all these New Testament stories. And what you want to do is say, well, let me, let me keep going. The authority of the Father is passed down to the Son. That's how we know who the Son is. So when, when we declare that Jesus is the Son of God, what do we look for? Well, we look for these stories, right? So we have our Bible. We are oriented through the New Testament. We read the New Testament, many people almost exclusively, and we often, when we wade into the Old Testament, we get lost, and it's confusing, and there's all kinds of poetic imagery, and it's tough to follow. So let's go back to Paul, because he feels more at home. Um, but the New Testament, we have to remember, when it's being written, they don't have anything. Their only source of information is the Old Testament. So every single thing in our New Testament is somehow connected to the Old Testament. And that's important to note, because when we look at these stories of Jesus, you always want to ask, where in the Old Testament is that coming from? And when you can find that, you say, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. There's a connection being made. So, for instance, if the authority of the Father is being passed down to the Son, then in the Old Testament, who rebukes the sea? God does. God has authority over the chaos. God is the one who rebukes the sea. All right, now go to the New Testament. What does Jesus do? Oh, he rebukes the sea. And by doing that, it's the story itself. By Jesus just doing one action, now you realize, oh, the authority of the Father is now passed on to the Son. He's the Son of God. That's how we know. Something's been passed on to him as the Son. So, God fed the people manna from heaven. Jesus shows up and feeds the people like manna from heaven. God is in control of evil spirits. Jesus shows up. He controls evil spirits. God rebukes the sea. Jesus shows up. He rebukes the sea. He's the son of God. This is how we know. It's never explicitly stated. It's stated through the stories. Okay, this is a big deal, especially when we look at how the disciples react to this walking on water. Let me give you one example, though, and go ahead and turn in your Bible. Well, you can turn there if you want, Psalm 89. If you don't want to turn there, I did put it on your handout, so you can just read it from your handout. But Psalm 89 is an interesting psalm in that it starts out with the attributes of God. It talks about God, what God does, his actions in the world, and that he's going to have control over the sea. Then it moves to David, 
because it's a psalm about David. And David then is going to be referred to as the Son of God, and then the attributes of God are going to be given to David. And so this Psalm 89 is very similar to what is happening with Jesus on the messianic scale, not just on the the kingdom scale like David. But if we look at a couple different uh, verses, so Psalm 89, 9, and 10, we'll do these real quick. Now, this, this is talking about God. So the, again, the beginning talks about God. So verse 9 says, you rule over the surging sea. That's Yom, by the way. So you as God rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Now we talked about when Jesus and his disciples go across the lake to the crazy man, and Jesus stills the storm. And the disciples say, whoa, who is this? So here we go. There's a connection right there in Psalm 89. You crushed Rahab. Rahab is a mythical uh, representation of the sea, like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. So this is God. He's got a strong arm. He's in control of the chaos, the sea. That's how the Psalm 89 starts. Now, if you go down to verse 25 to 27, now we're going to see that these attributes are going to be passed along to David. So verse 25 starts out, I will set his hand over the sea. So I, God, will set David's hand over the sea. His right hand, that's the hand of, of strength, the right hand over the rivers. That's a, a way of saying I'm giving him authority over the chaos. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my rock, my savior. And then verse 27, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, this is eventually going to get transferred to Jesus, but when they first wrote the psalm, father and firstborn are talking about David. Now, eventually that will get pulled into the Messiah, but just realize it's first written about David. And what we want to say is, if the authority of the father, the authority to rule over the sea, is now passed on to his son, then that's a biblical concept that's going to show up in the Jesus story. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, then the authority of God is going to be passed on to his Son. So Psalm 89 is a good, another good one to read. You'll see a lot of that imagery of the sea. Okay, finally, let's get to our point. What's the point of this? We're back to the Sea of Galilee. There's our boat. The disciples are out on a boat. Now, the question is, if the authority of the Father is passed down to the Son, who walks on water in the Old Testament? If you had to guess who walks on water in the Old Testament, God does, right? Now, where's that come from? Where does it, where's any reference to God, to God walking on water? Well, let's turn to Job. But I'm going to go quicker, but it's on your sheet. I put it on your handout. Job 9.8. Job 9.8 says this. He alone stretches out the heavens. Now, he, meaning Yahweh God, alone. There's no other God sharing power up there. It's God alone. God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the 
sea. Who walks on the waves of the sea? God does in Job. So when the, when the authority of the Father to tread on the waves of the sea is passed down to the Son, what does Jesus do? He goes out and he walks on water. And it's saying much more than what we're used to thinking about it. Now, the other thing is, is Job is an Old Testament book, right? And here's this word yam for sea. So if you're a neighbor of Israel and you happen to be reading this sentence, you just realize that their God's bigger than your God. So there's it's a lot going on here. Now, I put more on your sheet, and we don't really have time to go. We don't have to, a time to go really in depth of this, and maybe we can start off next week with this. But the idea of treads, okay, and then this where it says waves. Now it gets a little bit technical here, but I put the words on your sheet. That idea of treads, frequently attributed to God, but it's as as if God is walking into somebody else's territory. Whose territory is it? It's the adversary's territory that creates chaos. God's going to tread on someone else's territory. The next part is, is that word that we translate waves really means high places. You know where they worship the gods are on high places. It comes from the word that we use for the Bema seat, the seat of worship. It's the, even the place of worship in the temple. So what that sentence really says is God is going to tread on the high places of Yom. So there's double duty going on there. God's going to tread on the forces of chaos. Now, of course, what does Jesus do then? He does exactly that. He walks out. It's a storm. There's waves. And he goes walking out, treading upon the domain of the, of the chaotic one, the one who creates all the chaos. And the whole point is, we're all going to join in. And when, we, when you want to worship somebody who's above the chaos, turn to Jesus or the Father. Okay, so Job 9.8, really important to be able to connect that with the story of uh, walking on the water. Now, how do the disciples react? When they see this happen, and Matthew is a little bit different than Mark, but let's look at Matthew. So Matthew 14, 13 says this, very last sentence of this little story about Jesus walking on water, the disciples' reaction, then those who were in the boat with him saying, truly you are the son of God. Now, how do they know that? How do they know he's the son of God? Because he walked out on water. Because they know their Bible. They know the, the ancient Near East imagery and how it tells them that the authority of their father is being passed down to the son. If you're the true son of God and God walks on the, on, tramples on the, the yam, the sea, then guess what the son's going to be able to do? He's going to trample on the sea as well. And there's such, it's such a, um, it's a deeper way of saying that there's the divine nature of Jesus, no doubt, but it's that authority of Father to, to walk on the domain of chaos and remain above it. We'll see next week when Peter steps on the water, he's doing great till all of a sudden he gets scared and then he sinks, right? Well, what happens to us? As soon as we get scared, fear sinks us, right? If I want to control you, I'll get you afraid and you'll sink right into the chaos. 
And that's why God says over and over, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Because he knows as soon as you're afraid, you'll sink into that. Okay, let's wrap this up. There's a cosmic battle, order versus chaos. No doubt, that's one of the main ideas of the Bible. And that's a very ancient idea. And, it, and we can still watch it today in our lives. God has authority over the chaos. So who do you appeal to in those moments of chaos when you've lost control because you're limited? Well, you got to go to a God and you better choose the right God who can deliver you. Because if you choose the wrong, a false God, you're stuck. The authority of the Father is passed down to the Son. That's how we know the walking on water tells us about Jesus. And then finally, we'll look at next week, what does that mean for us as a child of God? And the power of God in our lives to raise us up above that watery chaos wherever it's happening. So that's just a review of our main points. So that was part one of Walking on Water. Next week, we'll rehash a lot of this. We'll go back through, look at Peter walking on the water, and kind of try to connect it to us in our own lives. But uh, pay attention over the next month and a half of all the screaming and the hysteria about the storms that are happening and how we anthropomorphize those forces off the sea. We do it every year, but it just tells you all about human nature. Okay, let me go ahead and stop the share.